Well, kids, uh, this morning I've got one uh, simple question to ask of you. Uh, it's a question that's simple to ask, but may not be super simple to answer. And this week it's not a funny question or a silly question or meant to be entertaining in any way, but it is an important question. And that question, kids, is this. Why does the church exist? Why does the church exist? Today we're celebrating Redeemer's birthday. And while we've been around for uh, eight years now, uh, the church, universal, or, or the Catholic church, as we say in the creed, It's been around for a couple of thousand years, and I wonder if you know why. That's kind of what we're going to be talking about in our sermon this morning. And so on your activity sheets, I've got some questions to help you follow along with the sermon and to hopefully help you um, find the answer to today's question. So church, this morning we come to the... Uh, Next to the last chapter in the book of Romans, up to this point in Paul's letter, uh, he has given us the great explanation of the gospel in chapters 1 through 11, and the great exhortation to the church for how to live in light of the gospel in chapters 12 through the beginning of chapter 15. And here towards the um, end of his letter, uh, Paul begins to give to the church some summary and concluding thoughts that we'll be looking at this week and next. And today, as he begins to conclude his letter, Paul gives us both a summary of Jesus' ministry in verses 8 through 13, and a summary of his own ministry in verses 14 through 21. And so what we're going to do this morning is to look at both of those together, and then to consider what implications... Jesus's and Paul's ministries have for our ministry, which feels like an appropriate consideration for us today as we celebrate the birthday of our church. What is our life together to look like and how can it be shaped and formed by Jesus ministries and Paul's ministry? So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it with me to Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse eight, as we consider together. The ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Paul, and what those mean for the ministry of us all. First, the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus said to his disciples that he had come, or he did not come into this world in order to be served, but to serve. And here in Romans 15, 8, Paul explains to us why it is that Jesus came to be the servant that he was. In verse 8, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Paul basically gives two reasons for why Jesus came to be a servant to the Jews. First, it was to show that God was true by confirming the promises that he had given to the patriarchs. And second, it was so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
Now I take a few moments to consider each of those by looking at what they mean and why they matter. First, Paul says that Jesus became a servant in order to show God's truthfulness. What this means is that Jesus' presence here on earth demonstrated that God is true. That He is real. That He is who He says He is. That He does what He says He'll do. And that His promises are trustworthy and can be relied upon. Jesus is evidence of the truthfulness of God. And the way that he proved that truthfulness, Paul says, was by confirming the promises which God had given to the patriarchs. What does that mean? Well, some 2,000 years before Jesus ever came to the earth, God had appeared to a man named Abram and had given him some very great promises. We've been talking about this in our adult Sunday school class this semester. This was the beginning of the presence of God's people here on earth. And in Genesis chapter 12, we read that God promised Abraham that he would turn him into a great nation, that he would provide his people with a land, and that he would bless them so that they could be a blessing to others. Later in Genesis 17, God made an everlasting promise to Abraham that he would be Abraham's God And that Abraham's descendants would be his people. Later to Jacob, one of Abraham's descendants, God promised that he would be with them. And that he would keep them until all of his promises were accomplished. And throughout the generations, both previous to and subsequent to this, other promises were made as well. To Adam, God had promised that an offspring would come and crush the head of the deceiving serpent. To Moses, God gave a Mosaic covenant, promising to bless God's people for their obedience and to punish them for their disobedience to the laws of God. To David, God gave the Davidic covenant, promising that one of David's descendants would build a house for God's name and would reign on the throne over God's people forever, and that God would be to him as a father and that he would be to God as a son. To Jeremiah, God gave the new covenant, promising to his people the forgiveness of their sins, the internal renewal of their hearts, and giving them uh, an intimate knowledge of God. The the point of all of this is that we have a covenant-making God. A God who has given very great promises to his people. And what Paul is saying in Romans 15 is that the reason that Jesus came to earth to be a servant to the Jews is so that they might know that God is true to his word by confirming the promises that he had made to the patriarchs. And the way that Jesus did that, the way that he confirmed the promises that God had made was by fulfilling them. It's as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Meaning that He, Jesus, is the answer to all of God's promises. Every promise of blessing and salvation and rest and security and peace and provision that God has ever made to His people points to and is fulfilled in Christ. For He 
is the promised serpent crusher from Genesis chapter 3. He is the promised offspring of Abraham who would bless all of the nations of the earth from Genesis 12. He is the sacrifice that Abraham knew God would provide in Genesis 22. He is the Passover lamb from Exodus 12 whose blood was spilled so that death would pass over God's people as promised. He is the one who fulfills all of the Mosaic law so that all of God's people can be blessed and not cursed. He is the promised son of David who establishes and reigns over God's kingdom forever. He is the child that would be born to a virgin as a sign that God's presence is with us from Isaiah chapter 7. He is the bringer of a new and a better covenant from Jeremiah 31 who forgives us of our sins, who gives us new hearts, who lives inside of us by his Holy Spirit. On and on and on you could go to every promise that God has ever given The fulfillment of that promise is found in Jesus, in his life, in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He is the one who confirms that what God has said is true. It's the first reason which Paul gives for why Christ became a servant to the Jews, to show us that God is true. The second reason that Paul gives for why Christ came to be a servant to the Jews is found in verse 9, where we read that he not only came to confirm the promises of God, but also in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Jesus not only came to the Jews because of God's promises to them, but he also came to the Jews so that God's mercy might be known by the Gentiles among whom God had never given promises. And then throughout a series of, old, of biblical references, uh, Paul shows how throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures, from the law of Moses to the Psalms to the writings of the prophets, that, prophets, that throughout the whole Old Testament, God's heart and his intention was not just to bless the Jews, but to extend his grace and mercy to the Gentiles as well. So that all of the nations of the earth would worship him. And this is what we see throughout all of Jesus' life. That though he often acknowledged that he came to the Jews and for the Jews and not the Gentiles, still he regularly extended the mercy and grace of God to a number of non-Jewish men and women who came to him in desperation and in faith. Often holding the faith of these Gentiles up before the Jews as a model and an example of what is needed to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so the second reason that Jesus came was to call a people who were not his people, my people. To say to a people who were not God's people that they are sons and daughters of the living God. And when we put those two reasons for Jesus becoming a servant to the Jews together, what we have is a picture of worship and of mission. For when God is acknowledged as true and truthful, when his promises are confirmed, that leads us to worship, to awe and to wonder and to thanks and to praise. There is no other possible response to God being revealed as true and truthful. It's why one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when all is known to be true. That's, worship is the response 
of the human heart to knowing that God is true. And when the mercy of God is extended to those who are not currently a part of God's people, that is an act of mission, of gospel expansion, of good news going to those who did not previously have good news. This was the ministry of Jesus. To make God known among His people and to share His mercy with those who were not yet His people. Worship and mission. That is what Jesus' ministry was about. What about Paul? In verses 14 through 21, Paul gives us a summary of his ministry as well. And in verse 16, he says that he was a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Now, it's interesting that Paul would use uh, that type of language to describe his ministry. Because the priestly language that Paul uses here harkens back to the Jewish priesthood of the Old Testament temple sacrifices, of which Gentiles were in no means allowed to be a part. So to reference a priestly ministry among the Gentiles is odd. But Paul's point is this. But in the same way that the priests of the Old Testament used to receive the sacrifices that were brought to the temple and they offered them before God as an acceptable offering, so now Paul views his ministry as bringing before God the Gentiles who are offering themselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God because of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so as Paul shares the good news uh, of God with uh, with the Gentiles and, and they receive that good news and are changed by that good news and come to God because of that good news, Paul views his ministry as one of offering them before the Lord. And as he told the church earlier in in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that when we present ourselves before God as a living sacrifice, that is a spiritual act of worship. And so just as the Old Testament priests offered their sacrifices as acts of worship before God, so Paul sees his ministry of presenting the Gentiles before God as an act of worship. This is the first aspect of his ministry that he highlights. It's a ministry of worship before God. And after explaining the nature of his ministry, Paul then highlights for us that he did this ministry everywhere. We see in verse 19 that Paul carried out his ministry from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, a loop that basically encircled the entire eastern Mediterranean world. Paul traveled and he preached the message of Christ And he planted churches everywhere that he went. For he said that it was his ambition uh, to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named, but where he had not been named. And so having completed his work in that area of the world, in verse 22 and following, Paul shares his plans to continue this work in Spain after a short visit to Rome. He wanted to keep going to new places. To keep bringing the good news of God and Christ to new people. And the reason he wanted to do that, as Paul quotes from Isaiah in verse 21, and as we heard read in our Old Testament reading this morning, 
The reason he wanted to do that is so that those who have never been told of Jesus will see. And those who have never heard of him will understand. And hence, will believe and be saved. And so just like we did with Jesus, when we, when we take a step back and look at Paul's ministry among the Gentiles in its totality, what we have is a picture of worship and of mission. For when our lives are offered before God as living sacrifices, given over to God for His use, and surrendered to God for His purposes, that is an act of worship. It's the acknowledgement that God is God and we are not. It's acknowledgement that we belong to Him and that our lives are in His hands. That is worship. And when that invitation to worship is taken to new places and to new people where the worship of the one true God has never been known, that's mission. So like Jesus, Paul's ministry was one of worship and mission. It was the praise of God amongst those who knew Him and the telling of God to those who didn't. Jesus did it as a servant to the Jews. Paul did it as a servant to the Gentiles. But both men were about the exact same work in their lives. Worship and mission. So what about us? As we celebrate the birthday of our church today, and as we take a Sunday to focus on and to give thanks for the church this week, it's a fitting time to ask the question, what's the focus of our ministry, both here at Redeemer and in our individual lives as well. What ministry are we supposed to be about? In our gospel reading today from Luke chapter 24, which is a uh, different and less famous version of Jesus' great commission, I believe that the risen Jesus shows us what our ministry is to be about After appearing in his disciples' presence and calming their anxious fears by having them fix their eyes on his wounds to assure them that it really is him, the disciples then experienced both joy and marveling in his presence. As Jesus reminded them about how everything that was written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had come true culminating in a proclamation of His death and His resurrection. And then Jesus sent His disciples out to be witnesses of all of these things and to preach a message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all of the nations of the earth. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like, to me, uh, like worship and mission. To have the presence of Christ among you and to fix your eyes on him as he teaches you from the scriptures how all of the great promises of God are fulfilled in him, culminating with his death and resurrection, leading to joy and marveling among those who believe that is worship and being sent out to share the message with others. That's mission. Worship and mission. This is what Jesus invoked uh, among his original disciples. And it's what he continues to call his disciples to today. Worship and mission. And so that's what we seek to do here at Redeemer. Each and every 
Sunday. We invite God's presence to come among us. We present our lives before Him in prayer. We fix our eyes on Jesus. As we hear His Word read and explained and being reminded of the forgiveness of our sins and through repentance we then culminate with a celebration of His death and His resurrection. That's worship. And then at the end of every Sunday, we're sent out into this world to do the work that God has given us to do. To love and serve the Father as faithful witnesses of Christ. And we're sent in the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. That's mission. Worship and mission. These are the two main ministries of Jesus and of Paul. And they are to be the two main ministries of us all. This is what the church is to be about. And this is what our lives as disciples of Christ are to be about. And in a very practical way, this only makes sense. Because these two major ministries of the church, they must go hand in hand with one another. For as John Stott explains, it is when we worship God, glorifying Him, His holy name... That we are driven out to proclaim His name to the world. And, and when, through our witness, people are brought to Christ, we then offer them to God. And they themselves join in His worship until they too go out to witness. So worship leads to witness. And witness to worship. It's a perpetual cycle. And so church... I want to ask you on this day of celebration in our church, are we being the church in your life, both gathered and scattered? Are you worshiping God as the one who is true and truthful? Do you regularly praise Him for the mercy that He has shown you in accepting you as one of His sons and daughters? Do you regularly give thanks to Him for His faithfulness to His promises that He has made to His people? Do you daily and moment by moment throughout your day offer yourself as a living sacrifice, as a spiritual act of worship? Do you recognize Jesus' presence among you by His Spirit, fixing your eyes on Him Allowing Him to teach you from His Word to the joy and marveling of your heart. Are you a worshiper of God? And do you allow that worship to compel you to go out into the world to love your neighbor? Does the good news of what God has done for you in Christ emanate out of you so that your life witnesses to the love of God in both word and deed in the world? Does your worship rightly send you out on mission? This is the work of the church. This is the life of a disciple. Worship and mission. Are we living it? I pray that we will. For God's glory. For the good of His entire world. Amen.